one minute at a time. I was blind, but now I see. Working jobs we hate, so we can buy shit we don't need. Ideas are brittle. If you had one shot, everything I'd ever read, heard, seen was now organized and available. Now you fucking khakis. Life moves pretty fast. The Biohacking Secret Show. This episode of The Biohacking Secret Show is very close to my heart. Frank was a client who has become a friend. We met through his sister, Nikki, when Frank was at his rock bottom. A surgery gone bad, combined with Lyme disease, co-infections, and chronic illness, had resulted in Frank moving back in with his parents, shutting down his business in a fight for his life. The night before we spoke, Frank found himself stuck in his parents' bathroom in a wheelchair because the sensation of the wheels hitting the grout between the tiles of the bathroom floor sent a shockwave of unbearable pain through his entire body. Less than a year later, he was running on the beach in Mexico. In this episode, Frank joins me in Telchac, Mexico, in the Yucatan Peninsula to discuss his journey back to life with the biohacks and breakthroughs that made it all possible. For more information about the ultimate biohacking experience that Frank and I talk about, this was an event that he attended four months into our program together. It's a, a transformational, experiential biohacking event that creates space for breakthroughs and to help optimize cognitive performance and alignment in body and mind, greater balance. And so we're not just being successful, but we're finding fulfillment and happiness and joy and and love in every step along the way. You can learn more about that at the ultimatebiohackingexperience.com. And if you want to learn more about our coaching program, you can go to biohackingsecrets.com slash coaching. Also, you can stay up to date with Frank's projects and check out his beautiful artisanally crafted singing bowls at www.theomstore.co. That's T-H-E-O-H-M-S-T-O-R-E dot C-O. Now enjoy this episode. What's up, bro? How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Good to How see you? you. Good to be here with you. Yeah, great to be here with you as well. Things are beautiful. Living the the wild Mexican beach life. We are. We're in uh, Telchac in the Yucatan yep. right now, and you live in Merida. I live in Chichulub. Chichulub. Yeah. Good. So uh, Merida, which I say things now with the Spanish pronunciation because I've been here long enough where I've been hearing it enough. Yeah. So. Merida is the biggest city in the state of the Yucatan. If you drive about 50 minutes north of there, you hit the port of Progreso. And then if you start driving east along the coast, you hit Chichulub about 15 minutes down the line. And then 15 minutes later, you hit Telchac. And that's where we are right now. Which is where we are right now. And I don't know if you guys can see, we've got an incredible view behind us with this pool that I haven't really been in aside from washing the sand off my feet. And then a little bit further, you've got the ocean that uh, I got a great workout in earlier and you're in there just about every day. Heck yeah, man. Yeah. Every single day. Nice. And yeah, no pools, chlorine. Yeah. It's um, the ocean's a better pool. Yeah. It, it, it's a much better pool. Um, well, let's dive in, man. We'll give we'll give everyone a little bit of background, and then you've got some amazing unconventional biohacks for overcoming chronic illness and Lyme disease and all of that sort of thing. Um, you and I spoke about three years ago for the first time. Yep. And your sister Nikki and I had done some work together, <clears throat> and then I think part of what initiated us getting on the phone was there was like an incident. Maybe you can kind of tell your, your recollection of it the night before we spoke and, yeah. and then what kind of started at least this 
iteration of your journey? Definitely. So it was probably not probably, I remember this pretty vividly. It was January, 2017 when you and I first spoke on the phone and I had had Lyme disease and ulcerative colitis and diagnoses, I should say, of ulcerative colitis, ankylosing spondylitis from the time that I was 21. So that was like 2007. So I had experienced about a decade long period of being in ill health. And after I had ulcerative colitis for 18 months, I failed all of the traditional medical protocols really quickly, high doses of prednisone, uh, the immunosuppressant protocols that you put you on. I was on biologics and failed them all, which culminated in me having my entire colon removed in 2008. So I had my whole colon removed in 2008. um, And then the doctor said, that is a curative surgery, meaning the colon was the problem in ulcerative colitis. So now you no longer have ulcerative colitis. Congratulations, all of your problems are solved. Even though I had a temporary ileostomy bag for three months, and then I had a quasi-colon, which was called the J-pouch procedure. It's a procedure that they use where they essentially pull down your small intestine and make it into a mega small large intestine combined. Which, (laughs) knowing what we know about the small intestine, doesn't seem like the best idea. Small intestine is typically like a sterile environment unless you've got small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and things that aren't supposed to be in there. So they're now taking a more sterile environment and making it a colon? Exactly. So they okay. made so they made what me a possibly new, go wrong? They made me a new colon and they said <laughs> all your problems are solved and I promise I'm getting around to the question uh, of January 2017 but the story actually begins in like 2007 so I'm going to get to the point as quick as possible. Take your time this is I'm enjoying it. It's important backstory. Yeah, it's important. So about 3 months after I had had my entire colon removed, I started getting what at the time felt to me like sciatic pain. So I'd have like shooting pains that went down through my sacrum and into the back of my legs and into my knees. And I remember the first thing that I did was I called uh, my surgeon and my surgeon's office. And I said, it seems really weird to me that after I had this problem with my colon and then you guys took it out, I'm now having these pains that are going on. Like, is there, could there be any connection? They said, no, absolutely not. You had a colon problem. We took the colon out. So then I started going to orthopedic surgeons who, you know, they did MRIs and x-rays and they said, no, structurally, you look fine. Why don't we just prescribe you with some physical therapy? And I would go through physical therapy protocols for three to six months. Getting moving in that way would always make me feel a little bit better, but I would never fully graduate a physical therapy protocol. So what it kind of started off as was just like a little bit of pain when I woke up in the morning that would essentially end by the end of the day, meaning after I've been moving around all day, I would feel great. And every single time I went through a physical therapy protocol, it like I started up here and then got a little bit better, but over time I was on this downward trend. Mm -hmm. And it was probably like 2012 or so and I was in Santiago, Chile with my sister. And I woke up one morning and I couldn't get up and walk around without severe pain. And I remember thinking to myself, how am I gonna get to the airport? How am I gonna get back to the United States? Like this is really bad. So we started figuring some stuff out and I went through all sorts of things to, I mean, I had traction, like forced traction and machines and uh, all sorts of chiropractic, nuca chiropractic, all sorts of things to try and address this as a structural and biological issue. And I never really fully resolved. 
And finally, after so much time, I had spent about 10 days locked in my bedroom uh, because my neck was frozen. So I had no ability to turn my neck beyond like this much. This is after you got back home from Santiago? After I got back home. Okay. So, uh, and at the time I was living with my friend, Matt, and I remember one day he like knocked on the door. He's like, dude, are you okay? You've been spending a lot of your time in there. And I said, I'm in so much pain. I can't get up and I can't walk around. So then I started consulting Dr. Google, uh, and Dr. Google turned me on to a guy named Dr. Thomas Brown, who had treated arthritic conditions, uh, with antibiotics. And he found that a low and slow approach of antibiotics over the course of a long term killed uh, mycoplasma and K. plibzella. Do you know that one? No. So essentially he believed um, that the root of a lot of arthritic conditions uh, were some sort of a long-term chronic low-grade infection. And this is validated in a lot of places, including there's a book called The Arthritis Breakthrough yep. where they'll use minocycline exactly. specifically. And I think it's like, we may, are we talking about the same thing here? Yep. Possibly. Minocycline doses, if and, and I could be off, but I believe it's like 100 milligrams twice a day. Yep. And you'll have people that have had rheumatoid arthritis for decades yep. experiencing an alleviation in symptoms. It was one of the things that I used when, when I was experiencing very, very intense inflammation in my journey as well. Yeah. Yeah. So like I started going down that route and then after I went down that route for a while and I wasn't fully resolving. So doctor, you were taking the minocycline? I was taking it. Okay. Yeah. So I had a doc out of Iowa actually who was practicing the methodologies of Dr. Thomas Brown. Okay. Um, and now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like someone fact check Dr. Thomas Brown is like the correct name. Um, <laughs> the arthritis breakthrough for sure is the name of the book and we'll yes. confirm the doctor. Confirm the doctor. Minocycline dosages possibly off, but I think they're correct. Exactly. <laughs> so after I started consulting Dr. Google again, I was thinking, man, a lot of what I have sounds like chronic Lyme disease that people are th talking about. Mm -hmm. So I found myself a chronic Lyme doc um, and we went through an 18 month protocol of high dose antibiotics and antivirals and antibacterial or anti-malarials mm -hmm. over 18 months. And my Lyme and all of the pain that I was experiencing fully resolved. And in January, 2015, I moved to Argentina for three months with my sister. And that's where we started our e-commerce business, the Ohm store, like while I was having this upswing. So then we did that for... And that's the spelling O-H-M? O-H-M. The Ohm store. The Ohm store. <laughs> so we went down that path and things were going pretty well. And then in August of 2016, so like five months before you and I first spoke, it was late summer and I was waking up every day feeling inklings of Lyme disease. And what were you feeling? Like my joints, everything just felt tight and creaky and painful. Mm -hmm. And then I was experiencing like essentially a low grade depression mm -hmm. uh, where it just felt like I, I don't understand what's going on. And I thought that I beat this. So maybe the Lyme, maybe the fact that here I was thinking that my life was going to continue on as it had before. And it just wasn't great. But my primary thing and what my Lyme care, uh, my Lyme disease doc told me is she's like, usually in Lyme, we deal with two types of people, brain people and pain people. And I was firmly in the pain camp. Mm -hmm. I did notice some depressive feelings, but ultimately my experience of Lyme disease and chronic Lyme disease was pain in my joints. Um, so I contacted her and she was like, well, the weird thing about a Lyme relapse is that you can't start the protocol again with antibiotics 
until you're really in the thick of it because you need to have yourself be in the thick of it and all the uh, Lyme and Borrelia and Babesia need to be in the correct shape in order for us to start the protocol. Mm -hmm. So I was scared. I was like, okay, so what's happening right now is we're waiting to see if I get worse and worse and worse enough to the point where we can start back on this antibiotic protocol. And things got worse and worse and worse and worse. So it was probably like September or so uh, or October that I was worse enough again to rebegin the protocol. And then the month of December of 2016 was really like a negative turning point for me because the only time that I came downstairs, I should backtrack a bit. In August of 2016, I had to call my dad and say, you have to come get me from my apartment because I can't walk down the stairs. So I was living in my childhood bedroom and my parents were my caretakers because I couldn't walk downstairs. I couldn't get to the bathroom without a walker. I couldn't really move. And my, my experience of life at that point was physical pain 24 seven. So December, the thing that I really remember about that particular month was that I only went downstairs one time and that was on Christmas day. So family came over for Christmas day and my dad and I decided we're going to like get, you're going to get through the pain of walking down the stairs so you can spend the day downstairs with your family. And then by January, I weighed 97 pounds and I essentially hadn't left the bedroom or gone downstairs again. And I had been on the Lyme protocol. I had been doing all sorts of non-traditional work. And what I really could tell at that point with my sister and my family bringing you to me because my sister had worked with you, what I really felt from them at the point was like, you're in such a bad position that we really need to try something different. Uh, because the way that you're going right now, it, it doesn't seem like you're going to make it out the other end of this. Like you're 97 pounds. I'm five, four for people who can't tell based on Anthony and I's <laughs> massive height difference in this. Um, but I'm five, four and I tend to carry a lot of muscle mass. So my general weight was around 140 pounds. So I was, I was like 43 pounds down and just like my arms were toothpicks. I couldn't walk without a walker. I remember I had, we had to get one of those medical chairs because I couldn't even lift my leg enough to get into a bed anymore. So it was like I was first bedridden, but then after that I was chair bound because I had too much pain to even crawl into a bed. So you and I spoke in January of 2017 and that was really the state of affairs at that point, which was no quality of life. And I remember feeling, I remember thinking to myself like, I don't even remember it, what it's like to experience hope or something positive in life. Uh, and I remember feeling like I am a drain on the resources of all of the people closest to me. And I remember feeling like I can't let any of my friends and my family see me like this because they would be appalled first. And then they would also now begin to view me as a weak person who needed help. Yeah which the funny thing was I totally did need help and I totally, need to, I totally needed to see them and needed their love and support, but I couldn't see that at the time. Right, yeah, I, I've experienced that in my journey too and I wanna to come back to you know, the, night, the night before we got on the phone, but I identify with a lot of that because yeah. like when, <clears throat> when we're not feeling like 
fuck the fully realized version of ourselves yeah. when, when we're not even feeling like normal, when yep. you show up and like, you see the look in your friend's eyes where they're like, where's the guy that, that I've always known and loved. And, yep. and, and if you're, especially if there's depression there, you know, and your mood is off and you, you just like, it's easier sometimes to isolate yourself. Yep. That doesn't mean that that's what we need. No. And, and we rarely get better in isolation, just consulting Dr. Google and kind of staying in, in, in that loop. We yep. need to get help, not, you know, in, in some form, but a lot of that help also comes from community and connection and love and human touch and, yep. and empathy. And, and when people see that you need help, a lot of times they're willing to step up and, and offer it in some shape or form. So yeah. if, if if any of you guys that are listening are, are struggling or at that point in your journey, I encourage you not to isolate yourself completely because it keeps you stuck. And, um, let's, let's come back to, so when Nikki and I spoke, she had said that, um, that night you'd gone to the bathroom yep. and the pain was so bad. You called for help Yep. and your dad came in. I think if I'm, and please correct me if I'm screwing up the story, but yep. he got you into a, 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 a wheelchair or a chair of some sort and he started pushing you out, but like the wheels of, of the chair hitting the tile yep. were sending so much pain through your body that you said, just leave me in here. I'm spending the night in the bathroom. Yeah. So that, that's exactly, it, it was like, I had been getting to the bathroom on a walker up until that point. And then I sat down to take a shit and I just remember almost like yelping, like you, like you'd hear when like you step on a dog's paw or something. I was like, I'm in so much pain. I cannot even lift myself off the toilet with the walker. So I remember something like a yelp or a cry for help, like someone come help me. Um, and we were like game planning while I was sitting on the toilet. We were like, what are we going to do to get you off the toilet? Right. It was like my, my Some sort of messed up game of twister. Exactly. Like my dad was in the bathroom and my mom was like peeking through the doorway and we were, we were like, all right, what, what can we do here? Can we just like carry you? And I was like, no, it will hurt too much. And my dad was like, well, we've got a wheelchair somewhere. Like, why don't we get the wheelchair? Just, you're going to have to like gut through us, like getting you into the wheelchair and then we'll lift you out of here uh, or, or wheel you out of here. So we got me into the wheelchair, which was a Herculean effort, uh, not the lifting part, but like the pain experience from just like being handled in the most gentle way. Mm -hmm. um, and I was in the wheelchair and you hit it exactly right. Like the grout was like tiny, right? It's not like deep tile. It was like tiny, but I remember we were trying to go over the bumps to get out of the bathroom and it was sending shock waves of pain through my body. So we sat there for like three hours, probably all crying. Like I'm sure I was crying. Cause I was thinking, well, now I live in the bathroom. I was living in the bedroom <laughs> and that was like, a, you know, a big step down from where I was living. Huge before. blur to the ego living right. in your childhood bedroom. Exactly. Now you're in the bathroom. Now I'm in my childhood Just bathroom. Just when I thought it could get worse. It could get worse. Like now I live in the bathroom in a wheelchair and yeah. this is now I'm gonna have to like live here forever. Uh, so for three hours again, we were just like, what are we going to do? This is bad. Um, and then kind of the same deal what we decided to get me out the toilet we're like okay we're just gonna wheel you out of here and it's gonna be 20 seconds of pain and we just have to do it because you're not gonna live in the bathroom <laughs> um and then we did that and it was like took all of the energy out of my body uh so that was really the impetus when i felt like and my sister felt like and my family felt like we have to do something differently because my lime doc is an amazing lady 
And she and her daughter have both through been, been through like Lyme and potentially more gelins and they understand this. And I felt like that was going to work over the long term, but I didn't know that I could make it to the long term without something to support myself immediately because the Herxheimer reaction, the paradoxical die-off reaction where you get much worse before you get better, mm -hmm. that I thought was gonna kill me. I couldn't see a way out unless we did something different. And you're and, talking about when you took the antibiotics that correct. they prescribed, it would, it would, so a lot of times for those of you guys that aren't familiar, like a Herxheimer reaction or a detox reaction will happen where you're killing off a pathogen. Yep. Some of that may also increase the amount of biotoxins that, that are released and the bottleneck, there's like, there's sort of two processes that occur when, when we're eliminating something from the body. There's like either the mobilization of a toxin or like, um, you know, in this case, the antibiotic starts killing off these pathogens, but then you got to get it out of the body. Yeah. And that second step is very often bottlenecked by the liver. Right. Yep. So we have either um, co-infections that are viral in nature, things that are affecting liver health, maybe certain genetic predispositions to lower glutathione and antioxidant yep. status. And if you mobilize a whole bunch of these toxins or create them through this by taking antibiotics, but then there's that that bottleneck, that traffic jam at the liver, yep. all that stuff just circulates causes more pain, brain fog, depression, some of those other symptoms. So yeah. just wanted to get everyone caught up. No, on that. that's great. Okay, sorry, so, please continue. No, so I mean, that's <laughs> where we were. And I think that I didn't know what to do. I was just like helpless and had been through a period with my doc before. Um, and I'm not being coy by not mentioning my doc's name. This is like chronic Lyme disease is not a, like a recognized medical condition. So, uh, the amazing and wonderful people who choose to treat this are putting their medical practices at stake. Mm -hmm. So I respect, uh, this person's confidentiality with my life because this is the situation that we're in. So I'm not being coy. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's legitimate why I'm not mentioning their name. Mm -hmm. um, so I had, been, I had felt comfortable that they were going to get me through this. But like I said a little bit ago, I didn't, I was like, I don't, I don't know that I'm going to make it through. And my sister was really like the angel in this where she was like, I think uh, Anthony, right? Like might have some different things for you to try. And she actually started sending me articles that you had sent her um, about like, I think I remember the title being like quantum wellness or something. And I remember feeling like a smile creep across my face and a glimmer of hope because I thought something new, something that I hadn't already found in the depths of the internet, a new way to think about things, uh, a new frame to look at this particular situation through where there was more experimenting to be done. So I remember before you and I even spoke, Nikki sending me some of the things that you had sent her. And I remember thinking, oh shit, right? Like maybe there's some hope. Maybe we can do something differently. And also at the time I was kind of a know-it-all, right? I was like, I've spent the last five years laying in bed sick and researching absolutely everything about what's been going on with me. And there's nothing that I haven't already found, right? Yeah. Like staying up all night, trying to figure out ways 
that I could heal myself or get well or practitioners that could help me with this. So I felt like I knew it all. And then I saw this stuff and I was like, oh, this is really interesting. There's a new path to take. What do you think is at the root of the, the know-it-all response? Because I've seen, I've seen that a lot, even like one of, um, one of our guys who's um, a, a very high-level professional athlete. One of the conversations we had before he joined was his, his biggest concern was that I didn't have anything he didn't already know or hadn't already tried. Yeah. <laughs> and so we had a few conversations and, and the conversations were fantastic, but I could feel that that was an underlying, yeah. an underlying challenge and roadblock. Right. And, and it finally got to the point where, um, I kind of said, it's time to take a crap or get off the pot. Yeah. And he was like, all right, let's do it. And then we were off and running, but yeah. like explain maybe a little bit of what you believe is at the root of that. I know everything. And you know what I mean? What, what, what are we possibly going to do that I haven't already tried? So the first thing that comes to mind is if I didn't know everything, then, or, or I thought I knew everything. And the thing that was important to that about me was I felt that I had to be the CEO of my own health when, and I remember vividly thinking this after my colon got removed and I started getting back pain. And what I started to see is like, the people that I am visiting are specialists in a particular area. And when you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So what I started to believe at that point was I could go for specific support to specific practitioners or someone like that, but I felt like most people were missing the full picture of what was going on, like the full circle of everything that went into true health. So I started to think of myself as like, I actually need to be the one that connects the dots between this practitioner and this practitioner and this guy or person who wrote this book. So I thought of myself as I'm the dot connector and it's my job to know everything because my life is at stake. And you, there had to be a part of you that felt like when you entrusted other people in this way and sort of, I don't want to say outsourced it, yeah. but you, you know, you went to a specialist and then things got worse that probably reinforced this belief that like you can't trust yeah. other people with this. It has to be on you. And if, if things go bad, then it's on you. And if things go good, then it's on you. There was so much blame that I felt and resentment towards the doctors that looking back, they did their absolute best with the resources that they had avail available to them, right? Like what they were trained for was to do a very specific thing. And the people that I worked with were some of the best in the world at that. And I just felt like you were wrong and I'm pissed that I entrusted you and you cut out one of my organs and you potentially missed that there was something chronic and systemic going on. And now I've got to live for the rest of my fucking life with your mistake. So I felt a lot of blame and resentment and anger towards anyone who was going to give me advice or any practitioner because I was in the place of everyone else doesn't get it and it's my job to know everything. Mm -hmm. So the truth was like, I was just blaming people mm -hmm. uh, because I couldn't bear to point the finger and ask myself like, what is my accountability in this? What am I missing? So I was just looking around and like, all of you were wrong and now it's my job to be right because my life's at stake. Mm -hmm. 
Imagine yourself for a second living in your power, operating at your full potential day in and day out, mentally sharp and clear-headed with no energy dips throughout the day, feeling strong and resilient in your body, able to do all of the activities that bring you joy without pain or injury. You're fueled by a level of motivation and commitment to multiply your income and impact alongside the energy to execute on the daily habits that will get you there. All of this and more can be yours. Your, he- your health and your energy is the greatest force multiplier in your life. It's what determines the success of your business, your relationships, your spiritual connection. They're all a direct reflection of your health and alignment. On April 16th, 2020, a brotherhood of elite men will gather to learn and apply cutting-edge strategies to unlock elite cognitive performance, restore balance in body and mind, and connect with a tribe of powerful, like-minded men on this same path. The question I have for you is, will you be one of them? Learn more and apply at ultimatebiohackingexperience.com. That's U-L-T-I-M-A-T-E-B-I-O-H-A-C-K-I-N-G-E-X-P-E-R-I-E-N-C-E.com. Spots are limited. You and I ended up getting on the phone yep. and having a conversation. Do you recall any bit about that? Uh, I remember, so the thing that I actually remember is not the first conversation, but I remember <coughs> uh, when you told me to go outside, if I could hobble out there and get some morning sunshine and also to start doing a biohacker bath and an ice bath uh, in the morning. Uh-huh. So typical Frank style, what I've learned is I combine them, right? Yeah. So I was like, oh, biohacker baths and ice baths and standing outside in the morning. That's all really interesting stuff. So, so I don't remember the particulars of the conversation, but what I remember is the actions that you set me down over the, I mean, we worked together for quite a while, but over the first 30 days, I remember my first ice bath. I remember my first biohacker bath. I still have pictures of the first ice bath because I had to put on a bathing suit and be lowered in there uh, by my parents. And we did like 30 seconds. And I remember like coming out of that and feeling invigorated. And I remember hobbling out to the front lawn at my parents' house and standing outside looking like an obvious kook in like January of 2017, right? So this is the suburbs of Chicago. So it's not like a bright, sunny, beautiful day. Um, so I remember some of the actions that, that you had me take. And at the time I had like, I feel that maybe in my life I had prided myself out, on thinking outside of the box. And what I remember feeling is, is proud Like I'm doing these things like an ice bath and a biohacker bath and standing outside barefoot. And I felt this is stuff that I hadn't tried before. So when you're willing, when I was willing to accept a new experiment, which I vividly remember you positioning everything that we were going to do as an experiment, because I was so deep uh, into an experience of ill health that we had to view everything as an experiment. And I remember feeling pretty excited about it. I was like, yeah. okay, now I felt like I had already summited all of the mountains and they were, they were just like false summits. So now I felt like I had a mission and I had a protocol of like, this is the mission and this is the mission plan and we're going to execute on the mission for 30 days. So 
hope is ultimately like the most important thing. Like when you've got a game plan and you're willing to step outside of your comfort zone and do something new, uh, for me who felt a little bit hopeless at the time, I started to feel really, really excited. Yeah. That was, that was what I remembered about our first conversation was, you know, your sister kind of gave me the quick rundown of, of some of the things that you had been going through. And she's like, do you think you could help him? And I, and I said, honestly, I'm not sure, but I'd like to talk to him because I wanted to see if, if you still had that like warrior spirit. Yeah. Right. Where, where if, if we were to build a game plan out that you would commit to executing on it, no matter how hard it was. Yep. And if, if there was still a part of you that believed that improvement was possible, yeah. you know, like you gotta, you gotta kind of soul check yeah. at the beginning. And I remember when you and I talked, you were like, let's go. Yep. And I was like, all right, this guy's got that warrior spirit. And, and then we were off and running yep. and then, you know, we started putting together the game plan, a, a few of those uh, components you've mentioned, which a lot of people would probably run from, especially without that first conversation. So like whether, you know, whether this is motivating yourself or motivating other people that you're helping, it's, it's critical to, to first make sure that that level of commitments there and like that someone believes that a better life is possible for themselves. And cause that's, what's going to fuel a lot of these challenging uh, executions that we need to implement on a yeah. daily basis in order to bridge a gap from maybe chronic disease or really just like anytime you want to improve, improve yeah. your health. It's sometimes hard things that you haven't tried um, that have been proven to work. And, and, and after we had that conversation, then, you know, ice baths and there's, I was just looking back on my phone and some pictures and there was a picture of you on crutches in the front yard, yep. barefoot facing the sun. Just and, <laughs> and, and I'm sure people listening are like, what are these guys talking about? Yeah. But the, the bigger picture to um, give a little bit more context. So biohacker baths, recipes, water as hot as you can tolerate yep. where the first 60 to 90 seconds is kind of difficult to get in, but then you're okay. You don't want to turn yourself into a lobster, like yep. burn your skin. And then you add to that two cups Epsom salt, like Epsoak is a really good brand that you could get on Amazon. One cup baking soda. These are the minimum amounts. You can add more if you want, but the ratios should be maintained. And then one cup of 35% food grade hydrogen peroxide. Yep. And I don't know if we even discussed it, but a lot of the reason that we're doing this stuff is because with with any type of chronic illness, we see um, a deterioration in like microcirculation, yep. and the we have to find ways to mimic the effects of exercise, like the vasodilation and vasoconstriction and getting blood into the brain, which is part of the reason that that depression and some of these other things can start showing up. Um, And and also allow some of the different tools like systemic and proteolytic enzymes that break down biofilms to get to where they need to go. Because if we're sedentary and laying in bed, a lot of that stuff doesn't happen. So it doesn't mean that you need to take someone who's not in a position to exercise and say, go exercise, but you have to find ways to mimic exercise through hot, through heat and cold and, yes. and some of these other tools. So that was like some of the, the, the reasoning for all of these seemingly horrible things. <laughs> yes. And I have a, I have a tip for the biohacker bath. Yeah. So there's like a little saying or story about the way that you boil a frog. Yeah. You don't right? like you boil the frog slowly because mm-hmm. as the water increases in heat, it doesn't know that it's being boiled. So with the biohacker bath and getting it to be as hot as you can tolerate, 
boil yourself like the frog, meaning rather than the traditional way of running a bath, which is you close the drain and then turn the water on, kind of feel how hot it is, let the bathtub fill up and then get in, you get into the bathtub, close the drain, and then increase the heat of the water as you're sitting in there. So that's just a little tip for taking hotter baths is get in the bathtub while the water is filling up because you'll be able to tolerate a hotter bath. I love it. Pro tip from Frank. Pro bath tip. <laughs> yeah. So um, you started doing some of those things and then and, and then what started happening or, or where else did the story go? Uh, energy, man. I mean, yeah. one of the first things that I that I started feeling was I started experiencing glimpses. Right. So like uh, when we think about something like taking an ethnogenic compound, for example, what I would compare this to is like when you take an eth- ethnogenic compound. These are, these are $10 words. What's an ethnogenic compound? Yeah, like a hallucinogenic compound. Okay. Or when you take drugs, <laughs> right? So like a, we're talking about like a microdose here, LSD or psilocybin. Yeah, or- so something like this, LSD, psilocybin, um, anything, even something more powerful like ayahuasca or bufo or synthetic DMT. Mm-hmm. The way that I read these things or even marijuana, like light versions of this stuff. The purpose of having these experiences isn't to have such an experience that now you want to be having that experience all the time. It's almost like a signal to your system of this is the sort of experience that is possible inside of my vessel. So the important thing is to know that a different sort of experience is available to you and it blows your mind wide open. And you might have, I mean, I might've personally had like one experience with a compound like this and then felt like I don't need to go do that ever again, or maybe for not like 10 years. Because the important thing that I saw was I got that glimpse. I got that taste of like, well, every day I wake up and I'm in the doldrums, like doing the things that I always do and like grinding out incremental effort. Then all of a sudden you're gifted with this flash of a totally different sort of uh, experience of life than you've ever had. And you now know that something different is possible. And you can take that knowing that something else is possible into your daily life mm-hmm. and just feel hope and feel curiosity and feel wonder, oh, oh, like a wonderment of, do I need something outside of myself to access a different state mm-hmm. or a different thought pattern? So the reason that I brought this up was because I didn't get better overnight and just like we started working together and I started doing all of these things and then I was the Superman again. Mm -hmm. I would do a biohacker bath for 20 minutes with coffee enema in my butt, right? So (laughs) like Anthony gave me these protocols and then what I thought was, how can I in Tim Ferriss style stack them all up and do them at the same time? So I would do the coffee enema, meaning like insert the coffee into my body in the non-traditional way. So you'd have an enema bucket. Yeah. Would you put it in before you'd get in the bath? Yeah. So I'd like put the enema thing, the the enema bucket up on the counter, lay on the ground and put it in. And then once I had the coffee in, I would like get myself over inside the bathtub. So no tube still attached. No tube still attached. I got it. Remove. I was always, not, not always picturing it. That sounds weird. But when you described it, I was picturing like you've got the bucket outside the bath. 
bath, the tube's running into you, and you're in the bath. No. You would get all the coffee in and then just hop in the bath. It wasn't like a butt IV where it was like permanently connected to my butt. <laughs> <laughs> it was That's what I was picturing. I was like, power to him. I've still never tried it, but it's 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 brilliant for for, for the uh, those that want to, you know, have no extra time. That's funny. <laughs> so I would get the coffee enema, and then I would do a biohacker bath, and then I would have like a bucket of ice, like waiting in reserve. So I would do the biohacker bath, get a really good sweat and flush going on, drain the bathtub, fill it up with cold water, dump the ice in, and then get right into the bath. And what I would start to experience was glimpses where maybe after this, you know, coffee enema, uh, biohacker bath and ice bath for perhaps like 10 minutes after that. Again, this is hilarious. Cause I was like 30 or 31 years over old at the time, but I would yell, Hey mom, come look at this. And then I would put the crutches against the wall and I would take 10 steps like an infant where I was like, I wasn't like ambulating appropriately. I was like swinging my hips like a cowboy who just went for a long ride. But I remember mom, come look, get the phone out. And then I would take 10 steps and then she would bring me my crutches. So I started getting glimpses of this where I could start to see not the rest of the day, but maybe for 10 minutes, I could support my own body weight in a less than normally intensely powerfully painful way. And those glimpses of five minutes of a different sort of way my body felt or 10 minutes of a different sort of way my body felt. And that hope and those glimpses were my fuel. And it made me hungrier to experiment with other things outside of that box. And it made me hungrier to question myself of, well, I kind of thought that I had thought outside of the box up until this point in my life. And now I'm doing these things and seeing the things that I'm seeing, which were largely positive and I was starting to take baby steps. So what I really started to ask myself is where else in my life, either when it comes to my biological healing process or the way that I'm thinking or the way that I'm processing emotions, what else has been right in front of me this whole time that I've been blind to for no other simple reason than I've just always been blind to it. So in the words of Landmark, I didn't know what I didn't know. So it started me like feeling very hungry for more. Mm-hmm. Let's see what else we can get into sort of mentality. Right. And one of the things that's so beautiful about you is that especially in this day and age, there's, there's so much talk about, you know, whatever it takes and being all in. And I think that there's, there's two types of people. There's people who you put them in a very difficult situation and you offer them, um, a a pathway to improvement and they might hear this. You got to do a a hot biohacker bath with a coffee enema followed by an ice bath. And they'll be like, I'm going to look for something else. Yeah. Right. But your mentality and that having that, that warrior spirit was you're like, all right, I'm going to do it and I'm going to try it and I'll judge later. I'm going to implement it for 30 days and then I'll be able to assess. So you came with that, not just an open mindedness, but a willingness to go through a gauntlet doing three things that any one might scare someone away. And you had to do all of them. Yeah, just a, a, a lot of people, a lot of people. So 
It, it, it is huge that like, how, was that something that you cultivated? Was it something that came about because of how much, because of where your life was at, at that point in time? Like, how did you, how did you cultivate this? Whatever it takes, I'm all in mindset and at least dispense or suspend disbelief long enough to give yourself a chance to accurately assess this stuff. So a little bit of this was formed by like my goals in life outside of health stuff. So I, in my pre ohm store days, I wanted to be the best, most ethical negotiator and salesperson and manager or trainer. And what I realized early on when I started to visualize and take action on these things was the people that I admired didn't just get there overnight. And I think that perhaps a lot of the conditioning that we've got is like, learn how this person built this hundred million dollar company in the last eight months or learn how this one miracle treatment turned this person around because they flew down to Mexico and then they like came back the next day or the next week and they were totally well. Mm -hmm. So what I feel is that this is going to be sounding a little bit out there. So visualization and manifestation and holding what you want in your mind absolutely works. However, the universe does not understand the time frame that you desire. So what I had learned from all of these things with my career, both pre-ohm store and then post-ohm store, was that I, if I held a vision of what I wanted to experience in my mind and took action on it every single day, even if I said, I want this to happen in six months, meaning I want my financial life or my career to look like this in six months, at the end of six months, if I still performed the activities and got a little bit better every day, what I felt and believed, not because someone told me to believe it, but because I experienced this is like, well, maybe I said I wanted to achieve this amount of career success in this particular way in six months. But if I kept at the process for 12 months, often I achieved that thing. So what I took from my life of business and jobs and careers was that pretty simply you can have anything that you want. The problem with this, this is like some famous saying, but like the problem is that like you can pretty much have anything you want if you don't quit, if you don't stop. The only failure is stopping, yeah. right? If you think you're going to have something in six months and then you stop, of course, you're going to not have that thing or you're not going to be experiencing the way that you want your body to feel. Mm -hmm. But if you dive into the process and let that be the way and get tremendous amounts of joy over the process, that's the ticket. My, my close friend, uh, Peter Shallard, who bills himself as like the shrink for entrepreneurs and he's got a company called Commit Action. He actually did this brilliant talk about it. I saw it in like 2015 and it still rings true to this day where he said the interesting thing, and he's talking about entrepreneurs because that's his gig. Uh, the interesting thing for people in business is that they start off with a goal in mind of, of wanting to achieve a particular milestone that feels scary for them. And at first, they can motivate themselves every single day because they can feel that goal. 
But pretty soon, especially if you've got an ambitious goal, like not being able to walk to being able to run and lift weights and play sports again, is that in order for you to get to a longer term goal, that's not like a lose three pounds thing, but it's more like gain 40 pounds and be able to play sports again. If it's a long term goal, you can't every day after six months or seven months or eight months still be sustained by that feeling of motivation that you get in the very beginning. The thing that sustains you and the thing that gives you dopamine, if you allow it to, is focusing every day on getting your enjoyment and your dopamine release from celebrating the process. So it goes from a mindset like this. I am going to be happy when I'm healthy, or I am going to be happy when my career looks a certain way. And you change that to, Every single morning, I'm going to wake up and write down my plan and say, these are the things I'm going to do. I'm going to send 10 emails or I'm going to take a biohacker bath and an ice bath and go outside uh, and I'm going to do gratitude journey, whatever the plan is. And then the way you start to evaluate your success isn't if I'm healthy or wealthy or blah, 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 whatever the end result is, you start evaluating your success based on doing the things that you said you were going to do. So you get to win along the way. So particularly if there's people listening that I would like to communicate to that allowed me to go through this extended wellness regaining process is if you're in a deep hole, change your expectation from I'm going to get better tomorrow. Change your expect, like visualize certainly yourself as this happy, healthy person and visualize what the people are going to say when you look healthy again and visualize what it's going to be able to be like. But every single day, right feel, down, feel it too. feel it too, yeah. right? Like feel the emotions of when my mom looks me in the eye and said, oh my God, Frank, you've come so far and I can't believe how amazing you look, right? Yeah. Like feel what that feels like now. Yeah. Um, future pacing. And even like as you're going there, as you go into these visualizations, playing around with like using our senses yeah. to heighten them, you know, make the colors brighter, make the vision and the pictures and images bigger, hear oh, what you would hear, you know, feel what you would feel. Like that's some of the ways that we activate our nervous system and this, that, you know, law of attraction. Yes. Right. Our ability to, to bring it into our reality faster. Yeah. So that's really like one of the biggest things that I would say, like, help me through this is a process oriented goal, right? Mm -hmm. Whatever it is, do the things that Anthony told me. And then at the end of the day, right, don't evaluate my success based on the way my body feels at that given moment, but evaluate my success based on, I had a plan and I executed the plan do something to celebrate, right? Just like smile, watch a silly YouTube video. My sister and I would like uh, start playing rock band. So there was so many, I lost all of the ways that I traditionally made dopamine, um, right? I used to get a lot of my dopamine and like my feel good from vigorous exercise and weightlifting and playing sports and being physically active. Yeah. So I had to look for different ways to celebrate, to get that like feel good energy. So me and my sister would like, at the end of a day where I execute all the stuff, we would play rock band in my childhood bedroom. And I would feel like, oh wow, not only did I execute on my plan today, but now I'm with someone I love who is here supporting me. And we're doing this like really funny, silly thing. Yeah. Amazing advice. And like <clears throat> with, with, all clients now, we sort of set them up to where they've got a vision for where they want to be in three months and then a vision for where they want to be in 12 months. Yeah. And the three months is like, that's their, 
that's their fight camp where they're going to be going all in and really committing 100% with dedicating all their faculties to their desired outcome in those, in those first three months. Yep. But then they're also going to span out from the process. So like the example that, that a lot of people can resonate with is like when you're trying to lose weight. If, if approach A is you get on the scale every single day because, yep. you know, you've heard what gets measured gets managed and, and mm -hmm. you know, some of that Peter Drucker business application to, yeah. to the health space, what can happen is you can ride an, a, a daily emotional roller coaster or even more frequently than that if you're weighing yourself multiple times throughout the day. But it doesn't give you perspective where if you are very clear in that vision 12 months down the road and you can track daily, but you separate some of the emotion from it. Yeah. And you realize that losing weight is going to look a little bit like this, yeah. you know, and there's going to be those ups and downs. It gives you, um, it makes the journey more enjoyable. And also you rely more so on some of that visualization and like bringing those pictures and feelings to your mind yeah. rather than just like you're making your vision about the three digits on the scale or in your case, two digits that then became three digits again. Totally, man. If I had to like su sum it up in like a, like a, a cute little clip, it would be to have whatever you want in life, do the things that you say you're gonna do. It's like that simple. Yeah. It's like say the things you're gonna do and then do them. Mm -hmm. And it might seem crazy or bold or like that is not a possible thing. Do the right things, of course. If your goal is to get healthy, uh, do the little things that you know, or rather don't know, do the things that you suspect or have an inkling or an idea of, well, I read about this particular way of eating or this particular body recomposition program. So I'm going to do this, right? And then when it's 6 a.m. on Monday morning and you've told yourself, I'm going to go to the gym, just don't hit that damn snooze button and get up and go to the gym. And you think about that for bigger things, getting yourself out of a big hole, or if you're a performance oriented person and you want to increase your performance, you generally know the things that you need to be doing, say them. And then your mantra is I do the things I say. Mm -hmm. And over time that adds up in ridiculously tremendous ways. I'm Donald Trump, tremendous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that's really what I'd say. It's like, uh, yeah, there's, if you just like say what you're going to do and then actually do it. Yeah. It's like amazing what can happen there. It, it also eliminates all of this wasted energy debating. Yes, You know, like that's part of the reason that it's almost everyone does better if their workout is closer to the time that they wake up or certainly like, you know, before lunchtime yeah. because you don't spend all day like, should I do it? What am I going to do? I don't feel like doing it. I don't like working out, but I do like the way I feel after I work yeah. out. And I like the way my body looks when I'm consistently working out. It's just a ton of wasted bandwidth yeah. where if we, if we sort of recognize that that is human nature, there's a few anomalies that are just, you know, they're going to execute no matter what. Yeah. I'm certainly not one of them. So we need to put rules, routines and rewards in place that support the behavior that builds the vision that we want. You know, a rule might be, all right, I'm allowed one snooze, but no more than one. And then the routine might be, I'm gonna work out within 30 minutes of waking up. I can wake up, get some coffee or tea, you know, whatever. And then I gotta get my butt to the gym or get myself moving, right? And then the reward is 
awesome, I did it, check it off the board, give myself a pat on the back, which yeah. sounds ridiculous, but like taking a second to congratulate yourself and be like, great job, Anthony, I'm super proud of you today. Great job, Frank, I'm super proud of you today. Like yeah. that stuff actually matters and, and makes a difference. You know, playing a little rock band at the end of the night because you've created that space to do it rather than coming home and you're like, I'm wiped out from working all day and I still gotta work out because I didn't have the rules and routines in place and executed the way that they needed to be for me to have all this other stuff, right? Let me say something about snoozing real quick. Somebody yeah. gave me some really, this is like snoozing, like hit your alarm and snooze. I feel like we've got a Gary V uh, meme coming. Well, somebody gave me some <laughs> really interesting advice one time. The guy's name is Steven Summers. And I always, this like thought rings through my head anytime an alarm goes off in the morning, which I don't typically wake up to an alarm, um, up with the sun, down with the sunset is kind of my motto. But on the instance where I do have to have an alarm, the mantra that's always been through my head that Stephen Summers told me, right? How much am I building this up, everyone? Um, <laughs> just wait. Uh, you so paid for the whole seat. You get it now. And I'm going to tell you the thing that you're probably not going to care about. Uh, <laughs> so uh, he said to me, yeah. Okay, so you've got these ambitious goals in life. You want your body to look a certain way, feel a certain way, you want your family to be a certain way, your career to be a certain way, and then you decide what time you're gonna wake up, and you can't even wake up and get out of bed at the time that you were said you were going to. What are you training yourself to think of yourself? Where you're like, I wanna do this ambitious thing with my health, but then when I have to open my eyes and swing my feet out of bed at the time I decided I was going to, can't even do it, right? Like, what does that say about your ability to be executing on the things that are truly important and challenging in your life? So that's my tirade about snoozing. For sure, there's <laughs> there's a lot of truth there. And like, we've, we've worked with people and talked with a lot of people that are at different places on their journey. And it is certainly much, much harder for some people to wake up. Yep. And there's a lot of factors there, but it is without exception that the people that do get themselves out of bed in whatever way they need to, maybe you got to drag yourself out of bed, maybe you got to, whatever it takes. But if you get yourself moving after five to 15 minutes, if even just something simple on an elliptical or going for a walk yeah. or, you know, a, a super light jog or anything that gets the blood pumping and gets you sweating after that time window, you're a different person completely. And then you've now taken all of this, wasted time in bed and then from there wasted time where you're feeling groggy and moving slow that yeah. could occur for hours to the entire day if you let it and you've eliminated it and you've condensed it down to, to 15 minutes. Totally. Yeah. It's like you, you set yourself up to win. It's like the Jordan Peterson thing. Like you wake up, make your bed, clean your room. Mm -hmm. You set yourself up with little victories so that you are someone to yourself in your own mind who achieves victories mm -hmm. and you don't wake up in the morning and right, like in your bed, lift a million pounds, uh, a million pounds. You don't <laughs> bench press 225 pounds, something that's real. Uh, just like you don't do that, like immediately when you wake up, you build yourself in your own mind as the sort of person who's winning and you can win by waking up when you say you're going to wake up. And then you say, I'm gonna meditate for five minutes. And then you meditate for five minutes. And then you say, I really wanna go outside and get some sunshine to my eyes first thing in the morning. And then you go outside. And then maybe you do a breathing practice and then you enjoy a cup of coffee. It's like, 
those things are really easy wins and they're pretty enjoyable, right? Like there's nothing in there that I described that is not enjoyable. Notice I said a five minute meditation, not like an hour long Vipassana style meditation or something like that. Mm -hmm. You set yourself up as someone in your mind and after those 20 minutes or two hours, you think to yourself, had a game plan, already executed on like 15% of the game plan for the day effortlessly and enjoyably and now onto the bigger and better things. And you're already like, paving in your brain someone who is winning because you're doing the things that you set out to do and yep. start with small things that way it's easier yeah great advice we'll talk a little bit about vipassana and some of the things that that you've also dove into along the way um let's talk about a, a couple months later right um i remember inviting you to come to what was at the time called biohacking week. Yep. It's now the ultimate biohacking experience. Um, you were still on crutches at the on time. Crutches. Yep. And if my memory served me, you hadn't driven a car in a while. Hadn't driven a car. Right. Yep. So this was like, I was in the suburbs of Chicago, biohacking week at the time was in Chicago. And the first thing that goes through my head is I can't get 30 miles away from my current, where my current body is located. I haven't driven a car in like, maybe since October of last year. So that was like, you know, the first thing that I thought was a problem was like, sure, forget about going there. I can't even get there. Mm -hmm. And then you and I had a conversation around it and, and you had some reservations because of the crutches. Yeah. And I remember just saying, just come. Yeah. And like, do what you can. It's yeah. going to be, it's going to be better than the alternative. Yeah. And, uh, and then I remember we were, I was, I was like down, downstairs outside my building and you were running a little bit late and we were getting ready to all like jump on the shuttle yep. and you kind of came pulling up. Yep. We parked your car and then you jumped on and uh, kind of tell us a little bit about what you remember from your experience. Man. So I remember you like telling me what it was. Like we're going to be doing all of these active things. There's going to be a bunch of guys there that you're really going to like. I was, I was thinking to myself why is this guy even asking me to come to this event that is a multi-day event that's centered around doing active things? He knows better than anyone that I like got stuck on a toilet three months ago. So what am I going to do showing up with like 10 to 20 able-bodied men? What, what am I going to do? So I first thought like not good enough, unworthy, unlovable, can't be seen by my peers who I really, right. I remember that week and there was some like really like performance oriented fit people. Was that where we had, did we have Huberman in from Stanford at that one? Yeah. Yeah. So we had, we had Dr. Andrew Huberman, like the Stanford professor of neurobiology there like, who like huh? sat that it, it, for those of you that don't know it, it, he's not a professor type. The guy's like jacked with tattoos Correct. and he boxes. Yes. Like, so Frank's rolling up to this type of crew. So I'm like, okay, all of these people are going to be showing me everything that I used to be. Uh, and I'm going to be standing there with my mouth hanging open, unable to perform any of the activities that they're going to perform. The other thing that really went through my mind is like, I don't think that I deserve to be in a room with these sorts of people. Uh, I had felt like after being unwell for so long, I was like, man, I feel terrible. I look terrible. I don't want to face people who are up to really cool things in the world with like 
performance, like they're performance oriented. What I said in my mind is they're performance oriented and I'm just trying to be able to like get up and go to the bathroom. Right. Um, so I had all sorts of reservations about that and you kind of just were really being like a strong advocate on my behalf where you said, come, don't do anything that you don't feel like you want to do or don't feel like you have to do everything that we're doing. Just come, just come. And I don't even remember how I made the decision, but I made the decision to come. This episode of the Biohacking Secrets Show is brought to you by Veritas Farms and their full line of CBD products, CBD standing for cannabidiol. Now, we are real excited about this partnership because Veritas means truth in Latin, and we are big believers in bringing you guys the truth, not just through this podcast, but by making sure that any products that we share or that we bring on as sponsors are products that we personally use, believe in, and endorse ourselves. And that is the case with Veritas Farms and their full line of CBD products. The reason that they're so great, they are full spectrum hemp products, meaning that they have all of the beneficial phytonutrients that you get in a quality CBD product. 99% of the CBD products on the market are CBD isolate, and they're just being resold, meaning they're coming from a few small manufacturers. They've only got one tiny part of all of the important phytonutrients that you need to get the benefits you want from a CBD product, and they're just a bunch of different companies reselling them. Veritas Farms is vertically integrated, meaning they own the farm. They ensure that there are no pesticides being added. It's organic, and then they control the entire process from harvesting to extraction until that product ends up at your door. That's what I love it. It's kind of like farm to table, but for CBD. And the benefits that I've noticed, my sleep is better. I feel like I get a deeper, more restful night's sleep. I'm less stressed. I never have periods of anxiety. I feel calm and focused throughout the day, and it even decreases in inflammation when I have flights or other things where inflammation is an inevitable part of life. You take a little extra CBD and it can be very helpful for stress, anxiety, sleep, and that inflammation. So if you guys want to check it out, we've arranged a 15% discount for you guys. To get that, you can go to theveritasfarms.com forward slash biohacks. I'll spell it out. T-H-E-V-E-R-I-T-A-S-F-A-R-M-S.com forward slash B-I-O-H-A-C-K-S to save 15%. Check out the Veritas Farms CBD. You guys are going to absolutely love it. One of the things that blew my mind very early on was we were at the beach and like for those listening that want a little context and like what the ultimate biohacking experience is about, it's really just about getting together an incredible group of like-minded men that are on this journey of realizing their full potential in body, mind, alignment and in, in, in spirit with their purpose um, and then creating opportunities that um, allow for rapid transformation and breakthroughs to occur, yeah. right? So how do you, how do you get into this group of, of other powerful men building your network, but then also where together we're, we're having breakthroughs and cultivating transformation, right? Yeah. So that's like the big picture of what we're doing. And one of the little moments is, um, we're all at the beach. We're at North, North Avenue beach yeah. in, um, in right downtown Chicago by like the magnificent mile. And, we were doing a, a, a plank challenge. Oh my God, I forgot about this, now I remember, holy shit, yes, great, yes. So we're doing this wow. plank challenge, and I, I, like you had thrown down your, your crutches and you were in it, right? And guys started to drop. And so we're, you know, one minute in, we lose a couple guys, two minutes in, we lose a couple guys, and Frank is still there. 
and you know, we're, we're all kind of like, everyone's charging, charging each other up and there's like this great energy. And then it gets down to like the last couple guys and you're one of them. And now we're getting into like the real deep water. It's like seven, eight, yeah. nine minutes. And then you're one of the last two guys you end up planking for in excess of 10 minutes, yeah. beat everybody there. Yeah. And I was like, what just happened? And I looked at you and I was like, how did you just do that? Cause a 10 minute plank is insane totally. for like a professional athlete, let <laughs> yeah. alone in the, in, in the circumstances you arrived in. Yeah. And I looked at you and I said, how did you just do that? And you looked at me and you said, do you want to know the truth? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, you go, I'm microdosing LSD right now. I'm <laughs> fractals. <laughs> and you were like, you know, it was, it was tongue in cheek. You obviously like dug real totally. deep to make it happen. Um, but that also says a lot about your, you know, your personality. It's like you were having fun with yes. that at the time. And, and that just blew everything wide open. Yeah. Right. And, and that like, what were you feeling in that, in that oh moment? Oh my God, like, dude, I'm, I'm so glad you reminded me of this because now it's all like rushing back to me. So I think the biggest thing when I was in a position of needing help to do everything, and then I was instantly surrounded by all these people that I were like, these people are just healthier and more physically powerful and they've just got stuff going on. And then I did a 10 minute plank, which it's not like I'm like a plank expert. Like I don't remember ever doing a plank longer than 60 seconds or something. So that it just opens my mind and talking about what we were talking about before, it gives you a glimpse. So you think, whoa, I was really limiting myself with the way that I was limiting myself, right? I was like, I had like a limiter on where you're like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. You can't do this because of what's going on for you. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to win like a squat challenge right now, but I find it really interesting that when I tried something that I hadn't done in probably over a year and then excelled at it, it gave me the glimpse where I thought, okay, I have been taking it way too easy on myself. And now just like before when I was hungry for like more information and new experiments. Now I'm hungry for more physical experiences that up until that point seemed like something that I had to visualize three years into the future. Like Frank, maybe you want to be riding a bicycle or you want to be climbing something or throwing a Frisbee and well, that's going to happen like three years in the future. So why don't you just focus on like yo-yoing or something for now, something more your speed. And now I thought, wow, maybe there's things that are exactly my speed that I thought were going to be possible way in the future, but are actually available to me right now. If I take a little bit of a different look at what doing well at them looks like. Yeah. What, what were specifically like one or two of the stories that you'd been telling yourself up to that point that then you kind of divorced or dismissed? So one of my biggest identify identities and the way that I thought about myself growing up was I'm an athlete. So I remember vividly like looking at myself in like seventh grade and I was the shortest one in the class. So I remember thinking to myself, if you're not going to grow really high like this, then you have to grow like this. Meaning like I remember from a very early age thinking that because I'm only 5'4", I want to be super muscular because that's going to be how I define myself as a masculine person. Where I thought to myself, I'm not going to be short and weak. 
I'm going to be short and strong because it seems way better than short and weak. And then I identified myself as an athlete my entire life. Um, I loved playing sports. I loved being active, whether it was competitive or just throwing around the Frisbee in the backyard. I thrived off of that. So my identity was I'm an athlete and I love that. And I love being around athletic men and women. And I felt like these were my people. And then from 2016 on, that was like totally gone. It was like, nope, you are no longer an athlete. So who the hell are you? So my identity was, or some of them were, you're not an athlete. So I didn't know who I was. Basically my new identity was, I'm certainly not an athlete. Uh, I, I'm not even like someone who walks down the street without crutches. Uh, I thought I am unworthy and unlovable. Um, and what that looked like in practice was, I can distinctly remember my mom saying, your aunt's really worried about you and she wants to come spend time with you. And I remember yelling at my mom, do not have her come over. I do not want to see her. So I felt like even the people closest to me, I didn't want them to see me because I felt like, what do I have to offer them? And also I identified myself as someone who was weak. Um, I remember thinking there's no way I'm ever going to have a romantic relationship again in my life because who would want to be involved with me like the way I was now. So my identities were not very positive at the time. Mm -hmm. So this is like, oh, wait, now maybe a new identity available to me is I'm like literally the plank king of Chicago, like yeah. something more powerful and fun. Yeah. Talk a little bit about um, this concept of like resilience and fragility. Yeah, man. I mean, so to start it off with the biggest cliche, like what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But more from my own experience of the world, it is like what is coming to try and kill you is teaching you the exact lessons that you need to learn to serve your highest purpose and mission in life. Mm -hmm. So the things that go bump in the night that you're scared of, the things that right, seem like they are very, very bad things or very challenging or confusing things, these things are your biggest opportunities. So I say something a lot to my sister, which is in life, you're either a problem haver or a problem solver. Now, the reality of our world is that everyone every single day is solving problems and challenges and dealing with new things. So the idea that eventually you're going to have a day or a life free of problems or challenges is an illusion or a delusion. It's delusional to believe that you're eventually gonna wake up one day and say, now I've solved all of the challenges that I'm ever gonna have in my life and the rest of the thing is going to be an easy street. So when these things start presenting themselves to you, they are still challenges and they might still be frustrating and make you angry or feel whatever emotions you're experiencing. But the reframe that I made in my mind around the idea of resiliency is that I needed to start everything that I was gonna lay the groundwork for which my, with my future health and wellness in my entire life by framing the way that I thought about everything. Physical pain, right? Like emotional suffering, financial suffering. If you ever dug yourself out of a deep hole like this, um, it can be a little bit financially stressful, mm -hmm. uh, right? Like very financially stressful. So all there's, of these, there's clinics that are yes. twenty five to fifty thousand dollars a week, completely, and a lot of people come back not that much better. Totally. So like these things are all happening, 
And your challenges, like speaking to people listening or watching, your challenges in life may not be my challenges. But I know, because I've been around the world and interacted with other human beings, everyone is experiencing their own challenges. And no matter what they look like externally, they're experiencing inner conflict, they're experiencing things that are very hard for them, Uh, they're experiencing things that make them feel depressed or angry or lonely. So the reframe that I had is, all of these people, things are coming at me to show me something, Mm -hmm. to teach me a lesson. And rather than blaming these things, right, author Michael Brown of The Presence Processor, or excuse me, the book The Presence Process by Michael Brown, he has a really beautiful way of looking at this. He's like, you don't kill the messenger, you receive the message. So problem had with problem solver is like, sure, this is in front of me and I can't walk right now, but do I wallow in, oh, I have this problem, or do I take action on figuring out ways to solve this problem. And then the other thing with resiliency is that solving a problem isn't always going to look the way that you concocted in your head it's going to look, Mm. right? Full health and wellness didn't necessarily look to me like I was gonna be able to do a 10 minute plank when I was still on crutches. So when I started looking for different opportunities like this, I'm like, oh, interesting. There are opportunities in all the problems that I've got. Uh, So that's really the thing that I notice about resiliency is like resiliency isn't some special magic secret sauce. Resiliency is the ability to see the things that are happening in your life as opportunities for you to learn a lesson. Mm -hmm. And and also recognizing that it is when when we feel like either we've been betrayed by a, a medical procedure or our body has let us down and is is becoming injured too easily or whatever you know our yeah. interpretation of what's taking place is it, it it's easy to feel like we are fragile yeah and that you know we, we need to live in the bubble but the reality is that prevents us from finding the right amount of good stress that actually causes the adaptations and the physical changes in the body that make us help us to grow. Yeah. And it's like resiliency in, in, in the book, anti-fragile, the way that it's sort of positioned is like, how do you implement systems that improve and strengthen under stress? Yeah. Right. So then it's just having those systems as a part of your routine. Um, you know, life can be hard. It doesn't mean life is hard, but it's it's undeniable that all of us will experience many hard moments. Yeah. And I think if your default programming is that no matter what, no matter where you're at, whether you're in a beautiful path of life where everything feels effortlessly and like it's aligned and synchronicities are happening left and right, or if you feel like you're swimming upstream and life is incredibly difficult and hard, if you bring to both of those scenarios the commitment to do your best, which may not feel like it's enough at the time, but as long as you have made that commitment and you will execute from that place, you're gonna be all right. Yeah. Everything's gonna be okay. And yeah, so, and, and, and that was what I saw in you. And one of the things that I love about you is like, I know that Frank is gonna show up and he's gonna do his best, whatever that looks like. And that's what opens up paths and, and creates worlds. A lot of things in life can be, can be solved by having a lot of try hard, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. I've just like learned that with everything. Like I learned that with 
athletics, being the smallest guy on every single team that I was ever on. Um, and I learned that in school and then in the job. It's like, I don't think that I was necessarily the most brilliant or best athlete. Like I was probably average, 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 like across the board. But what I believe is that like what you can control, you can't control your size and you can't immediately affect your body composition, right? Like there's all sorts of things that you can't affect immediately. What you can always affect immediately is your ability to bring try hard to the table, mm -hmm. right? It's like the Dennis Rodman effect, mm -hmm. right? Like not the most skilled, not the most like presentable celebrity or, or basketball player being on the same team as Michael Jordan at the time, but the dude had so much try hard in him mm -hmm. that he was just like, I remember watching Dennis Rodman thinking like, that dude scores like four points a game, but he has got the most try hard in it. And that goes far in life. Mm -hmm. Pulling rebounds over David Robinson exactly. and stuff like that. Yeah. Guys that are four or five, six inches taller. Try than hard. Yeah, try hard. Nice. What um, you mentioned a little bit about, you know, the, the rock climbing experience and it doesn't have to be that, but I'm thinking, thinking through your journey to where we're at today. Yeah. What's another moment or moments that, that are dear to your heart? I mean, so the, I would say it's like a two-step process. The first part in this process, so the rest of biohacking week was really spectacular because I climbed a rock, right? A rock wall. We were at like an in, indoor rock climbing facility and I was like, uh, no, like for so many reasons, no, right? Like I remember I, I was, I was dangling from the wall. Yeah. My arms are on fire. My hands feel like meat puppets. Cause you just got like all that lactic acid yeah. build up and I'm looking over and you're like shooting up the thing like a spider monkey. Totally. <laughs> like this guy rolls up on crutches. He's killing the game and crushing everybody. Right. Like one of the, if I had to like make up a lesson about that, because I'd been walking like crutches and walkers, the lesson is like the things that are happening to you that might be negatively might be preparing for you for something really interesting. So I had been walking like entirely with my arms. Now, when I looked at the rock wall, I thought of myself, my identity at the time was like weak, uh, not an athlete. So I looked at this thing and I'm like, no way. And then all of a sudden I was like, wait a second. As I started climbing it, I'm like, oh wait, I've been lifting my entire body with my arms for the last, right? Like six to seven months. So I can absolutely do this. So getting to the top of that wall, was another beautiful lesson, right? Like the things that are coming to kill you and go bump in the night might be preparing for you for something really interesting that you didn't expect. Mm -hmm. So the bizarre thing was my arms got super jacked because I was dragging myself around on them all the time. And then something like climbing a rock wall, which was challenging to people who are much more overall physically strong and competent than me. This was like a breeze for me. So that was something where I'm like, man, there's stuff going on here uh, where everything that's been happening to me is really giving me like a special set of skills and insight that without this experience would have never been available to me. Mm -hmm. So that particular thing was near and dear to my heart. Um, going to Florida in October of 2017 was near and dear to my heart. And literally, I think everyone except you told me not to do it. 
like family friends that were like, you're still on crutches, dude. What do you think you're doing? You cannot go to Florida by yourself and like drag yourself around on crutches and be in a different place without any of your friends and family supporting you. And plus you're like five, four and weigh 110 pounds and you're dragging yourself around on crutches. Just so many problems. Don't do it. So I was like, well, yeah, okay. I get all that. I'm going to just do it anyway. Cause I really appreciate the sentiment that you're looking out for my best interest but I think my best interest in this point at this point in my life is continuing to push the boundaries. Mm -hmm. So what I wanted was like sunshine and like being at the beach and being in a warm place and that like getting onto the plane and then getting off the plane and getting the rental car and driving to the place and meeting the guy and then spending the first night in the hot tub that was at the property just by myself, which I was like a 30 plus year old man and I had spent almost every waking hour for the past year plus with my sister, my mom, my dad, and like close family members. So being in Florida, sitting in a hot tub, looking at the stars, I can vividly remember thinking, man, everything's going to work out. And like a year ago, I couldn't even walk downstairs. And even though I still have crutches, how fun and interesting is it that traveling, something that I thought not possible like of course why wouldn't it be possible on crutches like you go to the airport and you see people needing to get onto the airplane with a wheelchair or special assistance so just never considered up until that point that of course there are people in this world who do things in a way that you wouldn't normally think of yourself doing them but they can be done so that was huge for me can i talk about coming to mexico yeah, yeah. I, I want to talk about that talk because about everything. this, so it was probably like 10 miles from here and it was January of 2018. And again, now I would graduated to a cane. So I was walking on a cane, right? So it's just like one crutch, man. I was just like the pirate hob, like hobbling around on one crutch. And after the Florida experiment, which was just like four days, it went really well. I had been reading about just like this negative magnetic anomaly that that was in this place of the state of the Yucatan. Mm -hmm. uh, and I thought, well, I have done every single out of the box thing that I can think of. So why don't I get myself into an environment that has been talked of as having a reverse magnetic polarity? I didn't know anything about it at the time. Still don't really. I operate more on like feeling and experience mm -hmm. uh, rather than someone needing to prove something to me before I did it. Mm -hmm. So I read some things about it and I thought that's really interesting. And I could get a direct- A lot of this was from Dr. Jack Cruz, right? Yes. And who is episode, he's one of the first episodes of the Biohacking Secrets show for those guys that want to check it out. Yeah. And very, very sharp guy. Yeah. So very sharp guy with very interesting ideas. And I just spent a year pursuing all sorts of really interesting ideas and methodologies. And this wasn't going to be a four day trip. Like I was looking for a house for a month, still on a cane. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine everyone said, you can't go to Mexico. Like Mexico's dangerous. And also you have a cane and also 30 days. Like, what are you doing? So I remember coming down here and I could feel in the airport standing in customs, like energy pulsing in my body. And I just remember thinking, oh, this is, this is really interesting. Uh, and then I got to the house. What did, what did you interpret that energy as? 
I mean, at the time, right, what we, what we will all do as people is like confirm our bias. Mm -hmm. So as soon as I started feeling those feelings, what I thought was everything I went was right. This place is magic. And this is just the start of the magic that's going to come. Right? Right. So I was just thinking like, oh yeah, this, this place is magic and I'm only in the airport. True or not. If yeah. you believe it, does, it, it doesn't matter. It, doesn't, it didn't matter. <laughs> I was like, oh, this is fun. Yeah. Um, and I'm in a foreign country for the first time in like two years. So, so many fun things going. So I get to the house and I start just like spending a little bit of time on the beach and hobbling around on my cane, still like walking around. And I remember when I got there at the time, I was doing like the mom look no hands thing a little bit more every day, right? I would like lean my cane against the wall and I would like walk. I would just like focus in and breathe and then aim to walk 10 steps or 20 steps. And I would focus on the way that I was going to ambulate. Like, don't be too much like a cowboy. Try and like swing your legs like this. And I distinctly remember you telling me like walk barefoot and focus on like grabbing the feet with your, uh, your the ground with your feet because it's going to really help if you like you're using your feet because your hips are so weak at the point at that time. Mm -hmm. So I was focusing on that, like leading up to it. And I got there and I did a little bit of that on the beach. I was like, okay, it's really easy to grab the sand with my toes. So I'm going to start walking, walking, walking. And then I can vividly remember that after three days, uh, I was walking around in like the sandy part of the the part of the house opposite from the beach. So on like the sand road side of the, of the house. And I remember walking and feeling like abnormally strong. And then I was like, man, I think that I could like run a little. So I first took like a little like practice run where I was like, okay, kind of just like walk, but like bouncy walk. And then I bouncy walked. I was like, okay, it definitely is like not pain free, but you know, I'm bouncy walking pretty damn good. And then I mean, I mean, I won't drag this out. You guys are probably learning. I'm a story dragger outer. The point is, <laughs> <laughs> what acclaimed, happened? Acclaimed story dragger outer. Acclaimed story dragger outer. I can take a story that should take 10 seconds and make it 10 minutes long. <laughs> That's one of my identities now. How could I reframe that as something powerful? So what happened eventually, the end of the story is I ended up running. And I remember getting my phone out and I was like, I'm going to film this. And I remember running and being, hey, family, I've been here three days and now I'm running. And I was running, running, running. And sure, it like hurt a little bit, but it didn't hurt to the point where I felt like it was dangerous or where I needed to stop. So that is something that I can just like vividly remember the feeling of I hadn't run since probably july of 2016 and now we're in january 2018 and i'm running and like what starts flashing to me is like all of these visualizations that i started doing a year or more ago of myself being an athlete again and myself running and myself like doing all of these active things and i thought man like every day going outside and standing barefoot and trying to tape like four steps and five steps and graduating from crutches or from the walker really to crutches to a cane to like five steps at a time with nothing. And now I'm running. 
And I just, I can still remember like the power of like, man, when you think about what you want and then play the long game of no matter what, right? The game of no matter what and no matter how long, I just felt all of the feelings that I was manufacturing inside my body during meditations and visualizations, I was experiencing them because of the actual experience I was having. It wasn't, it was like, it wasn't a visualization anymore. It was happening to me in real time and it was special and it was a turning point. That's incredible. It was like the culmination of so much of the, like the dirty work yeah day in and day yeah. out showing up and keeping hope and like enjoying all the little bit uh, the the little rewards and signs of progress and directing your attention to those yeah you know rather than just like grinding it out over yeah. and over again without with, with without a conscious direction of your attention and energy and appreciating every little improvement yeah you know um that's incredible what what else what were some of the things that that were practices that helped you along your journey for, um, for someone listening? And what are some of the things that are a part of the way that you operate on a daily or weekly basis today because they've been valuable yeah. for you? Um, so the first thing that I'll mention, because I think it's worth mentioning, is the Landmark Forum. And for anyone who hasn't heard about it, go ahead and Google it. You're going to see all sorts of horrible things said about it. I'm not here telling you to do it. I'm saying for my personal experience, it helped me reframe the way that I look at the world. And as I've talked about so many times here, like the way that you view the world when you're optimizing for performance or when you're trying to regain your health, the way that you view the world is absolutely within your control. So I believe it is a mandatory skill set in either performance or regaining of your health. So going through something like that really gave me the tools uh, to do that. And frankly, what I came away from that experience thinking and believing is that full on physical health may not be possible without emotional health preceding that. And if you already believe that you're physically healthy, you may be totally fine. And I may be like out of left field here. My experience is if you are not emotionally healthy uh, and emotionally integrated, meaning just simple things like saying the things you mean, um, doing the things you say, telling the truth to people, even if it's not flattering to you, understanding that everything in life that you've probably been operating up into in this way is about protecting the story of you. So what I learned and one of the biggest lessons that I came away from that was Everything around fear in my life and unworthiness and unlovability and all of these really limiting thought patterns that I have, it was because I was so desperately trying to protect the story of Frank, the story of Frank as an athlete. So if the story of Frank is an athlete, then of course my aunt can't come and see me because that conflicts with the story of Frank. And of course, I can't be in romantic relationships because being in romantic relationships when I'm on crutches, it conflicts with the story of Frank being like the warrior king and like, you know, being with his goddess. Mm -hmm. So one of the biggest things that I learned is, man, it's a really limiting way to live life if everything that you're doing is trying to protect the story that you've built up in your head about who you're supposed to be in the world. Mm And once I dropped that and decided, well, first off, 
you're always going to make up stories about yourself. So the thing about understanding that you're always going to make about make up stories about yourself is to just make up a fucking awesome story. <laughs> right? So it's like, okay, the story of Frank gets to be whatever I decide it gets to be. And one of the beautiful things about about like going through this health crisis for over a long period of time is I feel like most of the time in life you're building things onto your personality and the way you view the world in a very piecemeal way. Like think about it like rather than like building your dream house, you build like a really small tiny house and then over the course of 10 years, you put on like one addition a year. So it's like, okay, it's 2020 and this sort of fashion is in style for architecture. So I'm going to build this. And then it's next year and we build something else because that's what's hot in 2020. So we are a, an accumulation of different things that we've heard or been conditioned to believe over the course of time. And what this opportunity allowed me to do was to say, I don't need to keep like tacking on new additions. This thing, like I raised the whole property, right? Knock the foundation, knock the structure down, ripped out the foundation. And I got to decide the story of Frank that got me here has served me fine to get me here. And now I get to build from scratch the new story of Frank. So that was like absolutely critical for me is, is deciding that in that moment, I get to build the new story of Frank. And I then went to a Vipassana meditation retreat. Yeah. So knocked down the whole structure, right? Mm -hmm. And decided that I get to build from the ground up with whatever I wanted to concoct about myself, like whoever I wanted to be, wherever I wanted to live, the whatever the way that I wanted to treat people and I wanted other people to treat me and what I found acceptable in life, I, get to, I got to start from zero. Now, the message about this is it doesn't have to come on the other end of an experience that I have. So that's, or I had, that's something that I would really want people listening to this to understand is sure it might have been easy for me to rebuild from the ground up because i essentially had leveled everything mm -hmm. however what i have learned is that literally every single moment is an opportunity to rebuild the story of yourself right so if you don't like the way that you behaved yesterday or 10 minutes ago or 10 seconds ago or one second ago it doesn't matter. Take what you've learned or the way that you've behaved in the past as useful information. That version of you is now gone and in the past. And you have an opportunity right now in this very moment to start building the new story of you according to your dream plan, right? Mm -hmm. Like whatever it is. So that is something that I really learned throughout this process that I think is very important is it doesn't really matter what you've done in the past. You can own those things. You can say, I did this and I'm not proud of it. And, but, but the beautiful part about me having done these things that I don't feel so great about or aren't very flattering to me or are downright dirty if I look at them closely, you get to see exactly the way that you don't want to behave in the future. So you already had a test run. You saw what it was like 
to behave in a certain way or to do a certain thing or to spend your time in a certain way. And now you know for a certainty, not because you read it in a book, because you lived it and then maybe you went to bed that night and you're like, I feel gross about the way that I acted today. Hey, cool, doesn't matter because you learned a lesson. Now you know the exact way you don't wanna behave or spend your time or whatever it is. So when you wake up tomorrow morning, like behave in a different way. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those lessons came from doing the Vipassana meditation retreat. Yeah, can you explain what that is for someone who's not So, familiar? yeah, totally. So a Vipassana meditation retreat is, uh, it's, a, it's not religious, it's not dogmatic, it's a 10-day silent meditation retreat where you're essentially agreeing to do a 10-day experiment where you're going to abide by the suggestions and the methodologies that they've got. So some of the things, uh, common to a Vipassana meditation retreat is that you take on a period of noble silence for the entire time. Uh, noble silence means that you don't talk. Um, not talking also transfers to, you don't like look somebody in the eye and like do gestures. <laughs> it's like you're imagine that you're having a solo journey, but there's other people around you. Yeah, yeah, none of that. <laughs> so you take on the experience of not talking. You also don't have any technology. So you tune over your phones, you turn over your computers, you turn, turn over your car keys, you don't bring books, you don't bring journals. The goal of this particular process is to remove anything that you've used to numb or control uncomfortable emotions and experience what it's like to be pure experience. Another thing that I would say about myself is how many times has this guy said the word experience in this podcast? Somebody should catalog that because I'm <laughs> guessing like 50. Um, so you learn. It doesn't help that we've, we've named the biohacking week, the ultimate biohacking experience. Oh my God, we have to say it more, more, more. So, right. So you take on these concepts, like you're not going to talk to people. You're not going to communicate people. You're not going to be on your phone. You're not going to read. You're not going to journal. Uh, you're going to have the same schedule every single day. And the simplest way to put it is you agree that you're going to live like a monk or a nun for 10 days. Um, and you're going to eat when they tell you to eat, what they tell you to eat. I will say it's a beautiful vegetarian. Uh, Where did you go? Uh, it was outside of Rockford, uh, Illinois. Okay. Uh, I can't remember the name of like the small rural town, but for, for people listening who are all over the place, just Google like Vipassana, V-I-P-A-S-S-A-N-A. -S -S mm -hmm. And there's a lot of these centers around the United States and around the entire world. Mm -hmm. So I picked the one that was like an hour and a half drive from where I was. Okay. So you take on these, these concepts, these precepts, and you agree that you're going to abide by them for 10 days. And then it's truly like living like a monk or a nun. Uh, although I, I don't know, maybe it's not, I've never been a monk or a nun in actuality. I've just played one for 10 days. So you meditate all day, every day, and they're always at least one hour sits. So you do have a morning sit or a meditation that is two hours long. And then the rest of the meditations throughout the day are one hour long. And it is a very, very simple methodology and concept where you essentially learn for three days um, like the methodology where you just are getting prepared. So for the first three days during every hour or two hour long meditation, all you're doing is focusing on the way your breath feels going in and out of your nose. So like 
not doing visualizations or counting or elaborate meditation mentalities. You, for an hour at a time, hour at a time for 14 hours per day, are focusing on what it feels like for the breath to go in and out of your nose. And are you trying not to manipulate the breath? Are you trying to just let your breath do what it does naturally and you observe the sensation of the air entering and leaving your nostrils? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So you're not doing a breathing practice. You're allowing yourself to breathe totally naturally and then almost watching it as you're the observer of your breath, not the controller or the performer. Okay. So that's the, just as a prep for day three and day three really becomes fun because then you start doing what they call, I always really love this phrase and I want to get it right. I believe they're called sittings of strong determination. Mm -hmm. A sitting of strong determination now is in the meditations that are either two or one hours long, you do not move a muscle. So you do not move a muscle, you don't adjust yourself, you don't scratch your itches, you are experiencing yourself as complete, well, I won't say what it is that you're doing. Your, your job is to not be moving a muscle, your job is to not fidget anything, you're going in to the parts of your body where you're feeling the energy and then you're just observing what that energy feels like. Yeah. So you and I were talking a little bit before the podcast and there's been stories about people, you know, having fantasies about wanting to leave and uh, it's serious business. I mean, I would say it is one of the most serious business things I've ever done in my life. It, it, it terrifies me. Yeah. The thought of doing it terrifies me. I mean, I've, I've heard crazy stories like I, I talked to a guy who did a 10 day and yeah. said he brought himself to a full body orgasm without any stimulation, just with his mind. Now, I didn't know this gentleman very well, Yeah, but I mean, it, was, it was interesting feedback. And then, and then I've also heard people saying that when they get to that three to five day mark, yeah. they're willing to do just about anything to get out of there. Completely. And it's like... Birdman of Alcatraz, Shawshank Redemption type stuff. Totally. And like one, of, so one of the other things that I forgot is like you agree not to exercise vigorously. Mm -hmm. So the only like movement of your body, you're not meant to do yoga. You're not meant to like do push-ups in your room or like go for a jog during break time. It's like, oh, you can like walk lightly and think about your breathing while you're walking. So there's really like what they're setting you up to do is see what it's like to be a person, right? Like be like a pure person. The way that I like to think about it, especially as I've been spending time with like a lot of dogs here on the beach in Mexico, is I'm like, oh, that's kind of what they're trying to do. They're trying to get you the experience of an animal where rather than being obsessed with the thoughts that are thinking you all of the time, you're just doing what you're doing. And in this instance, they're setting you up to have a really condensed, trying not to say the word experience, they're, try, they're setting you up to have a practice run of what it's like to do what you're doing. And in this case, what you're doing is sitting down and breathing. Mm -hmm. And the cool thing that you realize or that I personally realize, everyone will have their own realizations if they choose to go into something like this. The cool thing that I realize is I was obsessed with doing things. I was addicted to doing things. I was addicted to thinking things. I was addicted to eating when I felt like eating because it was something to change my state of being. 
Uh, I was addicted to looking at my phone. I was addicted to reading and journal. So all of these things, whatever like good or bad or like beneficial or not, the important thing isn't that reading is a good thing and a phone is a bad thing. The important part is that I saw about myself is that I was addicted to doing things. And if you allow yourself to sit still and experience your breath for a long enough amount of time, you realize that most everything that you've ever wanted is available to you in every single moment. And that everything else you're doing, right, to try and get the happiness or get the success or do whatever it is that you're trying to do because of what you believe is on the other side of getting or doing or having that thing, um, it's really available to you if you pay attention to what's happening to you now. So that was super cool, uh, especially because I still, this is like back from the Mexico experience about six months. It was like June or so of 2017. And that was really cool because I was still on crutches at that point. And what happened to me during that point is like, oh man, I've been like thinking I wasn't gonna be happy until I was healthy again. I wasn't gonna be happy until my career was at a certain point and I had the right girlfriend and I lived in the right place. And what I came away from that that uh, Vipassana meditation retreat feeling is, shoot, all of the stuff that I'm doing is really cool uh, and I like most of it and some of it's probably not serving me anymore, but the end result of everything that I'm like desperately trying so hard to do and have and be is really available to, available to me if I just like shut up stop being addicted to thinking and doing things and whatever it is, being obsessed with the story of Frank. And I just pay attention mm-hmm. to like what's, what's happening right now. Yeah, that's great advice. And it, it is one of the biggest challenges we face is like dispelling this notion that we are human doings Yeah, and remembering that we're human beings oh, and, and being can exist in any moment yeah. if we're willing to slow down and observe and release some of these rules and stories that become that become barriers to um, that alarm going off is, is an, a, I have an interview in uh, about four and a half minutes All right, right now. <laughs> uh, so we'll, we'll bring it home. But like these stories and these rules that we have around what we have to do in order to be happy yeah. um, can be the very barriers that prevent us from experiencing that, that happiness and joy and peace. Totally. And like the freedom that I want to, to like close this point with is it doesn't mean that post that retreat, I thought to myself, ha, everything is a sham. I'm addicted to doing things. So now I'm going to do nothing except sit here and breathe. Mm -hmm. The freedom that it gives you is you now understand that this feeling that you're chasing is available to you right now. So now you can really focus in on what are the things that I really want to spend my time thinking about and doing about or doing right. Or the people that I want to be with and then go do that. So it like focused me up. It gave me more freedom to stop feeling like there are so many have to's in life and more get to's. And you said something last night that resonated with me, which was an energetic shift where you mentioned a lot of things that you've stopped putting off. Yeah. And if there was something that you wanted, you've been taking immediate action on it. And like you you talk about meeting your girlfriend and things like that. But like what was maybe you can just 
quickly because we're running low on time, bring a little bit of color to that shift that's made a big difference in your life and helped you to attract things a lot faster. Totally. So this is, uh, to keep it short, I started a no masturbation challenge with a friend in July of 2019. So last year. So like, what is that? Seven months ago, eight months ago, we decided to just no time limit. We said, let's just do it and let's just see how long we can go. And we'll just like talk about it together. Um, so I'm still in that experiment um, of no, ma no masturbation since then. And over the extended amount of time, what that has been like for me is, what was that thing we talked about? Causation is not- Correlation is not causation. Right, so I'm not saying that like stopping masturbating is going to be the answer to all of your problems in life. Something that I've noticed that happened since then is there is an amazing woman who has been in my life for five years as a friend. And after a couple of months of doing this experiment, I realized that everywhere that I was looking for love was the wrong places. And this really amazing woman was right there. So I called her up and said, hey, how would you feel about exploring something romantically? And then like 20 days later, she flew to Chicago and we had an epic four day date. Uh, with my business, there are things like in 12 months and 24 months, I see the business doing such and such and this, and then I visualize it. And now I wake up every day and I say, how can I get myself to that point today? What are the actions and behaviors that I can do today to start like lassoing the future and like jerking it toward me? So the experience of taking this energy that I might spend, right, with masturbation, like I see a pretty woman uh, and then, you know, I go masturbate or I fantasize and I spend my time in fantasy fantasizations, if that's a word. So now what I was telling you last night that I think really brings the point home is I can take the smile of my girlfriend, a very pretty woman, or take the smile of any pretty woman and I can appreciate it for what it is, experience the charge of any energy that it gives to my body. And rather than like running to the bathroom or shower and trying to release that charge as quickly as possible, I take that charge and put it into the important things in my life. So Napoleon Hill calls this sexual transmutation. You're taking the sexual energy, which for a man and woman maybe, is ultimately a source of power. And rather than going and like, just like doling it out to every shower drain and toilet and tissue in the world, you're taking that charge of energy and putting it into the shit that's really important to you. I love it. Great, <laughs> great advice to kind of bring it home on. Frank, where, um, <clears throat> where can people stay up to date with your journey, you know, do you have social media? Let's talk about the Ohm store. Totally. Yeah. So the Ohm store, uh, the OHM store.co uh, is my primary place. My sister and I are business partners and we are utilizing all of these lessons that we learned together to bring physical products to the world that inspire all of these things that we've talked about. What we believe is essentially that the pre present moment can be heaven if you choose to put down distractions and you're addicted to doing things and experience it to connect with yourself, your friends and family and the world around you. So the primary we do this with is with handmade singing balls that are singing bowls that our partner artisans hand make in Kathmandu, Nepal. And our social media and our email list are places that we communicate this exact sort of stuff. It's not like just spammy email content. What we aim to be is an education and an inspiration company that also sells beautifully handmade products by global artisans. That's beautiful. 
and uh, social media. And I, I have, I have one of your sun bowls that's amazing. Yes. And like some of the things that you've shown me with putting water in there and like how, how you can watch the sound waves resonate in the bowl. It's like, yeah. it, it's amazing. The bowls are beautiful. So um, definitely check out the home store. And then do you have personal? Uh, so the primary, so I do all, my sister and I together do all of the content creation and writing and everything for the home store. So on Instagram, we write essentially a blog post per day um, about our experiences and what we feel is important. So at the home store, I do have personal social media accounts that I don't truly update, but if you want to follow me, go ahead at Frank Moserino. My name will be in the notes or whatever. Um, M O C E R I N O. In case you're super curious to go follow me. I think that with your help, I might be able to go above 500 followers on my personal IG, but the home store is essentially where I channel all of my creative energies. Awesome, brother. Well, thank you for hanging out. Dude, I really appreciate the conversation. This, this is has great, been man. awesome. It's been like a couple years in the making. Absolutely. But yeah, thank you for being you. you got and, it, and thank you for sharing your heart. Thanks for having me. What's up, guys? Anthony here. And thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Biohacking Secrets Show. One of my favorite things to do is helping men and women like you feel what it's like with the body you've always wanted, an all-day energy that starts the moment you wake up and doesn't quit. Over the past decade, we've created a proprietary health assessment that helps me to identify the unique toxicities and deficiencies that may be holding you back from the life that you deserve. And what we've discovered in doing this with now thousands of CEOs, executives, professional athletes, businessmen, Hollywood celebrities, and entrepreneurs is that there's always room for improvement and optimization. Whether you're already performing at a high level or you have that feeling inside your heart that you're capable of more, the single fastest way to unlock your potential is to upgrade your mind and your body. And there's no program on earth that does that faster or to a greater magnitude than our one-on-one -on -one consulting program at www.biohackingsecrets.com forward slash coaching. We start with our proprietary health assessment that screens you for vitamin deficiencies like A, D, magnesium, iron, etc., high cholesterol and heart disease, high blood pressure, digestive disorders, hidden infections like Lyme, Epstein-Barr, parasites, SIBO, Candida, and more that can just drain your energy in the background, especially if you don't know about them. Anxiety, depression, and cognitive disorders, autoimmune disease, adrenal fatigue, thyroid issues, mold toxicity, heavy metals, environmental toxins, and other genetic risk factors like MTHFR, APOE status, your glutathione production, and many more. We even recommend the specific tests that I use with my one-on-one -on -one clients if they're relevant for you in figuring out your biological age and identifying those key areas and opportunities that can take your life to the next level. From there, we create a customized game plan along with a personalized supplement protocol to help you optimize your weight and energy at the cellular level. And for our platinum clients, we even include a personalized workshop with me in Delray Beach, Florida. Most of the year, this program's full with a waiting list, but we just had a couple spots open up and I wanted to offer them to the listeners of the Biohacking Secrets show first. So if you're interested in seeing what it might look like for us to work together, head over to www.biohackingsecrets.com forward slash coaching. That's www.biohackingsecrets.com forward slash C-O-A-C-H-I-N-G and fill out the short application form. If you're pre-approved, you'll be given the opportunity to book a time to connect with someone on our team and see if it's a fit. 
Thank you so much for being a part of this community, and I look forward to potentially going on this journey together. 